So remember that time that I was talking about how great it was that we had like an actual consistent narrative for something like 60 pages and four chapters of just, you know, the same characters and one consistent overarching plotline? Yeah, so not so much anymore. Um, we get one chapter continuing our plot with Margarita and sort of resolving everything that happened with the Great Ball at Satan's, as well as resolving quite a few other random threads while we're at it. And then we get two chapters of the pilot novel, which sort of conclude that, but not exactly. We'll talk about that. Um, so let's just jump right in, since I'm sick and tired of these lectures going along, and this one might very well be shaping up to be another one. Um, let's start with the extraction of the master. Um, so last time we saw Margarita go from mild-mannered housewife with a dark, dark secret that she was having trouble living with, to crazy witch going around blowing up people's apartments, to hostess at the Great Ball of Satan's and drinking blood that apparently gave her superpowers, question mark. Um, now the ball is over. Everybody's gone home and it's quiet again. And we get another sort of intimate picture of, of the devil hanging around with, with his pals. And I want to sort of just like deftly light on a few of the moments here in this chapter leading up to when things get real. Um, just because there's a lot of, like, fun little details that give a lot of depth to the characters that we've already encountered. Um, like, at this point, we're pretty comfortable with all the characters. Like, we've seen them harassing people in Moscow for, you know, 200 pages at this point. We saw them all in the Candlelight chapter sort of getting along and being friendly with each other. You know, Behemoth clowning around and Azazello making smart comments and Koroviev being genial and also a little bit like too smart for his own good um but now we see you know everybody sort of relaxing coming down from all the craziness that took place at the ball um so a couple of the scenes that i sort of want to like pick out um we get behemoth's long story about eating the tiger um which is i'm which i'm kind of a big fan of like we get um you know, the, everybody's done with the ball and Woland is talking about how he's kind of relaxing now and really the ball is super stressful and really un frustrating and annoying. Um, we get that line about there's no charm in it or scope either and those idiotic bears and tigers in the bar almost gave me migraine with their roaring. Like, it's annoying to Woland. Remember, Behemoth is the one that put together the ball. He's the one that, like, decorated it and we had that fantastic description of, like, all of the jungle trees and birds in the one room and then like the the weird you know jazz band in the other room and at some point like the jazz band has been replaced by animals like it's weird and possibly a little racist um but you know bulgakov is russian and it's the 60s and it's kind of hard to understand how racism works in this context um uh, much less the contexts that we're more familiar with um but then finally, like, we, we get the, the cat responding, if you find no scope, I will immediately begin to hold the same opinion. Like, Behemoth is playing suck-up at this point. Like, he just does whatever Woolen tells him to do. Um, and finally, you know, Woolen tells him to watch himself, and he responds, I was joking, and as far as the tigers are concerned, I'll order them roasted. 
And Hela says, one can't eat tiger. And then Behemoth launches into this story. You think not? Then I beg you to listen, responded the cat. And narrowing his eyes with pleasure, he told how he had once wandered in the wilderness for 19 days and the only thing he had to eat was the meat of a tiger he had killed. They all listened to this entertaining narrative with interest and with Behemoth, when Behemoth finished, exclaimed in chorus, Bunk! And the most interesting thing about this bunk, said Woland, is that it's bunk from first to last. And despite the fact that you would expect Behemoth to get very indignant about this and put on this big show, he actually just says, ah, bunk is it? History will judge. Now, there's no particular reason why I like this story. It just is really telling about all the characters that at this point we both, like, admire and acknowledge Behemoth enough to, you know, let him give us this ridiculous story about wandering in the desert for 19 days. Um... Which is, you know, a fairly typical hermit sort of story. Like, there are lots of stories about this, but it's kind of absurd to think of Behemoth as being, you know, like a pious hermit in any extent of the imagination. But also, it's nice because everybody agrees that it's nonsense. Like, Woland even has that great line about the unique thing about this bunk is that it is bunk from first to last. Um, like, it is just so relentlessly a lie, so relentlessly nonsense. But it's also, as I stressed in the last lecture, transparent nonsense. Like, you'll notice, again, you know, Koroviev told Margarita when she first showed up that, that Woland and company are, are the enemies of all lying uh, in one sense or of another. Enemies of any sort of reticence and mysteriousness. By contrast, Behemoth tells this ridiculous story, and it is ridiculous on its face. It is not a lie. It is a story. It is nonsense. Um, and it's interesting that we see this sort of contrast here. The difference between bunk, which is acceptable, and reticence and mysteriousness, lies and deception, as we've seen in Moscow. The devil is here to expose... And notice that Behemoth is exposed, like right from the outset, as though that was the goal all along. Like the only reason he told the story was because he knew that they would expose him. Um, but the second sort of like moment we have here is with Azazello, which is really an interesting moment for Azazello. Like we, we get sort of an insight into his character as well. Um, so Margarita ha is sort of like talking about the murder that took place at the, at the ball that, you know, Azazello shot the, this Baron Michael right in the heart and, you know, it was very exciting. And notice too, that that's how it's framed here. Um, so, you know, right after the story about the tiger, we get, and tell me Margot revived after the vodka addressed Azazello. Did you shoot him, this former Baron? And notice Azazello's response. Naturally, how could I not shoot him? He absolutely had to be shot. Like, Baron Michael is so awful, so deceptive, so dissimulating that Azazello feels compelled to shoot him. Like, notice the, the sort of insistence here. Um, that especially because it is, you know, Woland and company, all of these people who are, are out to expose the truth, to punish, you know, injustice and, and lying and dissimulation, Azazello feels compelled to shoot him. He absolutely had to be shot. But notice Margarita's response. I got so excited. It happened so unexpectedly. And yet Azazello responds, there was nothing unexpected in it. But notice Margarita's sort of character here how she's you know thrilled at this murder that took place you know we usually imagine people like 
they, they see some murder happen, some instance of violence, and you, you know, you think of like the Hollywood movies where, you know, there's an action movie and suddenly there's a chase scene and all these people go running away, like they scream and they run. Um, but notice that Margarita is excited by it. Like, just the same that we said that she was, you know, thrilled and excited and possibly even moved as though sexually in the destruction of Latunsky's apartment, we also see this sort of, you know, thrilling, this happiness, this gaiety about the murder that she witnessed as well. You know, part of that is probably her character of, of you know, Margarita being a very unique, very interesting, very passionate, and very dramatic woman but part of it too is Bulgakov kind of seems to have a fairly different view on violence than we usually do like again we've seen violence all throughout this book we've seen the decapitation of Berlioz we've seen you know Lakote have spirited away we, we've got like magical happenings and other decapitations like Bengalski's decapitation and we get you know people getting shot and people getting turned into vampires and people getting punched in the nose like all this sort of violence is used for comic effect throughout the book um, like even the turning Nikolai Ivanovich into a pig and Natasha riding him off into the sky like there's something both violent and mean and absurd and joyful about all of this um, and you know it probably comes to a crux at, at that you know destruction of the apartment by by Margarita and here with the the murder of Baron Michael um, but notice that it is exciting because it is just like, in the same way that we like to watch violent movies to see the bad guy get their comeuppance, Bulgakov is stressing that here, and Margarita sort of expresses it for him. You know, she is personally attending this, these acts of violence, but it is all appropriate. It is all just. It is all warranted. You know, Woland is acting with impunity here. There's no moral consideration to be had except that this is, in fact, justice. Like, nobody has pity for Baron Michael, nor should you. You shouldn't feel bad for him. He was a terrible person. He was going about messing with people, and Woland was absolutely within his rights, admittedly some rights beyond the law of the land, but rights nonetheless to kill him. Um, so it's exciting. But we end up with this sort of discussion of, of Azazello's abilities here. Um, so at the bottom of this page, on page 278, Margarita says, Ah, I got so excited when that baron fell, said Margarita, evidently still reliving the murder, which was the first she had seen in her life. You must be a very good shot, she asks. Passable, replied Azazello. From how many paces, Margarita asked Azazello, a not entirely clear question. Depends on what, Azazello replied reasonably. It's one thing to hit the criti critic Latunsky's window with a hammer, and quite another thing to hit him in the heart. In the heart, exclaimed Margarita, for some reason putting her hand to her own heart. In the heart, she repeated in a hollow voice. It comes, they continue discussing, and we, it comes out that Margarita broke the windows of the critic Latunsky, that she, you know, destroyed his apartment. Um, she says, I destroyed his whole apartment, and explains it. But then, notice Woolen's response. But why did you go to such trouble yourself, he asks. And... All of a sudden, everybody's, like, fighting with each other to take revenge on Latunsky. Allow me, Messiah, the cat cried out joyfully, jumping up. You sit down, Azazello grunted, standing up. I'll go myself right now. No, exclaimed Margarita. No, I beg you, Messiah, there's no need for that. Notice, again, they get this report of the critic Latunsky, who, you know, Margarita just tells us just a little bit that he is, you know, 
a bad critic, and they're literally chomping at the bit to get him. Like, Behemoth wants to kill him. Azazella wants to kill him. Not just because he's bad, but because he hurt Margarita specifically. They are all itching to take vengeance on him, and she stops them. Which is a bit strange, given how much, you know, Margarita hates Latunsky, and how much that expression of her hatred appeared in the destruction of her apartment, or of his apartment. But notice, too, that that seems to be enough for Margarita. Like, that's as far as we need to go. Um, now, this isn't exactly the case. There will be more acts of destruction to come. Um, but for now, anyway, Margarita lets this slide. Um, but we come back to Azazello. So where were we, precious Queen Margot? said Kuroviev. Ah, yes, the heart. He does hit the heart, Kuroviev pointed his long finger in Azazello's direction. As you choose, any oracle of the heart or any ventricle. Um... And of course, now there needs to be a demonstration. So they pull up this, like, a playing card, the Seven of Spades, and Margarita, like, marks one of the, the pips, one of the spades with her fingernail, and they put the card under a pillow to, like, hide it. So Azazella doesn't even know which spade it is she, she's marked. And then we get this scene on page 280. Azazella, who was sitting with his back to the pillow, drew a black automatic from the pocket of his tailcoat trousers, put the muzzle over his shoulder, and without turning towards the bed, fired, provoking a merry fright in Margarita. The seven was taken from under the bullet-pierced pillow. The pip, marked by Margarita, had a hole in it. Notice Azazello is unfailing in his accuracy. Like, at one point they say, earlier, you know, he, you must be a very good shot, and he says, passable. He is very clearly being modest here. Like, he's not even looking at the playing card, which is itself hidden under a pillow. He fires over his shoulder and hits it right in the pip. And then, of course, Behemoth needs to one-up him. Um, I undertake to beat the record with the seven, Behemoth says, as Azello growled out something in reply to that, but the cat was stubborn and demanded not one, but two guns. As Azello took a second gun from the second back pocket of his trousers and, twisting his mouth disdainfully, handed it to the braggart together with the first. So again, we have these dual character moments. Like, here's Azazello, who, you know, is totally downplaying his own abilities with the pistol. Notice, too, that he's apparently just got all of these guns on his person. Like, he just reaches into one pocket and he pulls out the first one that he shoots the seven with. But then when Behemoth asks for a second gun, like, Azazello just has another gun in another pocket. Like, who knows how many more pistols he has on his person at any given moment. Um, but notice too, Behemoth is excited and bragging about it and really also wants to participate. Um, he's got to show off. He's got a clown. So two pips were marked on the seven. The cat made lengthy preparations, turning his back to the pillow. Margarita sat with her fingers in her ears and looked at the owl dozing on the mantelpiece. The cat fired both guns, after which Hella shrieked at once. The owl fell dead from the mantelpiece and the smashed clock stopped. Hella, whose hand was all bloody, clutched at the cat's fur with a howl, and he clutched his, her hair in retaliation, and the two got tangled into a ball and rolled on the floor. One of the goblets fell from the table and broke. Like, notice, Behemoth goes to show off, and he wildly misses. Like, he kills the owl, which, I'm not sure why there's an owl on the mantelpiece in the first place. Like, it's just apparently hanging out there. He shoots Hella, like, he practically takes her finger off, and she immediately responds by, like, getting into a fight with him, and they're, like, tearing at each other's hair and stuff. Um, and Behemoth has this whining complaint to it. First, pull this rabid hellion off me, but then later he says, I can't shoot when someone's talking at my elbow. 
And notice Woland's response, I'll bet, said Woland, smiling to Margarita, that he did this stunt on purpose. He's not a bad shot. Like, I don't know whether Behemoth is as capable as Azazello shooting, you know, backwards over the shoulder through a car- playing card he can't see, but Behemoth, whether or not he could hit it, he doesn't want to. He just wants to cause chaos. He just wants to clown around. And shooting off Hella's finger is apparently within the, the limitations of that. Now, immediately after this, Hella and Behemoth make peace, her finger is restored, and everything is fine. Like... But notice, too, that Behemoth has this strange reaction when they actually pull the playing card out. Like, the card was taken from under the pillow and checked. Not a single pip had been hit, except for the one shot through by Azazello. That can't be, insisted the cat, holding the card up to the light of the candelabra. Just as we saw him denying his loss at chess, we see him denying his loss to Azazello here. But notice, too, that there's something kind of earnest about it. Like, he's surprised. Despite the fact that he obviously missed, that he shot the owl, that he shot the clock and Hella's finger, somehow he thinks that, you know, he should also have hit the pips. Like, somehow the ricochet or, you know, some chaotic, weird motion of the bullet should have somehow hit the mark in addition to missing. It's strange and kind of very characteristic of Behemoth across, uh, across the board. Um... But besides these two sort of moments, like, we get this long quiet and everyone's sort of fidgeting around and Margarita finally gets up to leave and this is where things come to brass tacks. It's time for proper justice and proper payment to be awarded. Um, So notice the way that this kind of plays out. Margarita says that she has to leave and then go drown herself. Like... She's fairly blasé about this, but, you know, what other option does she have at this point? She was contemplating suicide at the beginning of this section. Like, way back in the first chapter, Margarita, you know, she was saying, well, I I can't live like this anymore, so I'm either going to have to forget the master or kill myself. So she kind of just comes to the conclusion here. You know, she literally left her husband, flew off in the middle of the night. She may not be able to retain her witch's powers. What does she have to live for at this point? So I guess I'm going to go to the river and drown myself, she says. And this is where, you know, Messiah, the devil, asks her, are you sure there's nothing you want to say before you leave? And Margarita, of course, denies it. Um, notice her response here at the bottom of page 281. No, nothing, Messiah, Margarita answered proudly, except that if you still need me, I'm willing and ready to do anything you wish. I'm not tired in the least, and I had a very good time at the ball, so that if it were still going on, I would again offer my knee for thousands of gallows birds and murderers to kiss. Notice she doesn't back down. Remember that the whole arrangement at first was that she was going to sign up in order to learn what had happened to the master. Now she foregoes that. She's too proud. And Woolen compliments her on this. True, you're perfectly right, Woolen cried resoundingly and terribly. That's the way. We've been testing you, said Woolen. Never ask for anything, never for anything, and especially from those who are stronger than you. They'll make the offer themselves and give everything themselves. Sit down, proud woman. Woolen tore the heavy dressing gown from Margarita, and again she found herself sitting next to him on the bed. And so, Margot, Woolen went on, softening his voice, what do you want for having been my hostess tonight? What do you wish for having spent the ball naked? What price do you put on your knee? What are your losses for my guests whom you just called gallowsbirds? Speak, and speak now without constraint, for it is I who offer. 
Notice what Roland says here. Notice that he emphasizes that, you know, A, she's right not to ask for anything. She's right to be proud. But more importantly, she's right to be proud because the people who are more powerful than she is will offer these things freely. Notice how different this is from the way that the Soviet, you know, bureaucracy has worked until this point. How you've got to lie, cheat, and steal your way to getting ahead in this world. What Woland is describing is an older form of justice. Um, one where Woland really is better than Margarita. He is more powerful than she is. He has more to offer her. You know, Margarita is awesome in her own right. She has that weird blood thing going on, that strange lineage and that assertiveness in her own character. These are all admirable qualities. They make her better than the average person by Woland's reckoning and by ours as well. Um, at least as Bulgakov is trying to, you know, communicate to us but Woland of course is the devil he has a lot to offer he is very powerful you know the most powerful angel in in God's pantheon before he fell and not reduced in power after the fall either like he's got power he's got stuff to offer he can give so he offers and Margarita's response notice isn't what you might think Margarita's heart began to pound. She sighed heavily, started pondering something. Well, come on, be braver, Woland encouraged her. Rouse your fantasy, spur it on. Merely being present at the scene of the murder of that inveterate blackguard of a baron is worth a reward, particularly if the person is a woman. Well then? Margarita's breath was taken away, and she was about to utter the cherished words prepared in her soul when she suddenly turned pale, opened her mouth, and stared. Frieda! 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 Someone's importunate, imploring voice cried into her ears, My name is Frieda! And Margarita, stumbling over the words, began to speak. So that means I can ask for one thing? Demand, demand, my Donna! Woland replied, smiling knowingly. You may demand one thing. Ah, how adroitly and distinctly Woland, repeating Margarita's words, underscored that one thing. Notice the subtext here. Margarita asks for one thing because she's thinking of Frieda. Remember the woman who came to her at the ball, the woman with the handkerchief who, you know, she strangled her baby, buried it because she couldn't feed it, thought that was the greatest mercy she could offer it and was punished for it, is punished by having that same handkerchief appear on her nightstand night after night. That is her eternal torment. Remember how Margarita felt bad for her, how she, you know, dug her fingernails into Behemoth's ear for making fun, um, how she, her heart was moved by her, how that itself reminds us of Gretchen way back in Goethe's Faust and how there's this kinship between Frieda and Margarita here as a result. She thinks of her, and yet she gets from Wolin this emphasis, no, she's only going to get one thing. She can't get both. It's either going to be Frieda or the master, not both. And yet she answers, I want them to stop giving Frieda that handkerchief with which she smothered her baby. She gives up her dream in this moment. She's ready to sacrifice her love for the master. The original reason why she went to this altogether, her heart has been so moved for Frieda that she decides to waste her, her wish, her one boon from the devil on this. But as it turns out, that's not how it goes. 
The cat raised his eyes to heaven and sighed noisily, but said nothing, perhaps remembering how his ear had already suffered. "'In view of the fact,' said Woland, grinning, "'that the possibility of your having been bribed by that fool, Frieda, "'is, of course, entirely excluded, being incompatible with your royal dignity, "'I simply don't know what to do. "'One thing remains, perhaps, to procure some rags "'and stuff them in all the cracks of my bedroom.' "'What are you talking about, Miss Sire?' Margarita was amazed, hearing these indeed incomprehensible words. "'I agree with you completely, Miss Sire,' the cat mixed into the conversation, "'precisely with rags,' and the cat, cat vexedly struck the table with his paw. "'I am talking about mercy.' Woland explained his words, not taking his fiery eye off Margarita. "'It sometimes creeps, quite unexpectedly and perfidiously, through the narrowest cracks. "'And so I am talking about rags.' Notice Woolen's response here. He is frustrated, he is disgusted by this prospect of mercy. That, you know, he says, get rags, let's stuff them under the door, because it seems that mercy is likely to creep in through even the narrowest crack. Here is Margarita, you know, who has said herself that she is wicked, that she has given herself up to wickedness, that has, you know drunk the blood of Baron Michael's heart and committed herself wholly to Satan on multiple occasions at this point, and yet still, when asked, she asks for mercy, for Frieda. And notice, too, what this sort of implies about Woland. Like I've said multiple times throughout these lectures, you know, Woland is this arbiter of justice. He goes and he seeks out wrongdoing and he punishes it. And there's something powerful and something straightforward and good about the fact that he is being just in a society that has become, like, unhinged with its injustice. And yet justice is not only opposed to injustice, justice is also opposed to mercy. Mercy is ignoring what is just, you know, doing away with what is the appropriate punishment in favor of being considerate and sympathetic. If injustice is doing bad people to people who doing bad to people who don't deserve it, justice is doing bad to the people who deserve it, and mercy is not doing bad to the people who deserve it. Frieda deserves punishment, for sure. She did kill her child. She did commit infanticide, and that is a horrible sin. But Marguerite understands why she did it. Marguerite understands that, you know, the guy who got her pregnant in the first place somehow got off scot-free, as Behemoth was quick to notice. And thus, Margarita takes mercy on Frieda. She is sympathetic. But notice how Woland responds to Margarita's mercy. First, by challenging it. He is frustrated by it. He doesn't, like, rebuke her for it. He doesn't reject her plea. He's frustrated. It doesn't belong to him. And that's very much what he emphasizes here. So Margarita says, you know, Woland asks her, you are by all tokens a person of exceptional kindness, a highly moral person. And Margarita says, no, I know that one can only speak frankly with you. And so I will tell you frankly, I'm a light-minded person. I asked you for Frieda only because I was careless enough to give her firm hope. She's waiting, Messiah. She believes in my power, and if she's left disappointed, I'll be in a terrible position. I'll have no peace in my life. There's no help for it. It just happened. Notice, Margarita doesn't claim to be good here. We should recognize her goodness in this situation, but that's not how she recognizes it. Instead, she sees this as an obligation. 
when Frieda came to her, when she promised her to forget the, her troubles for the night, she was implicitly accepting responsibility for her on some level. And Frieda trusted her. So when Margarita explains this to Woland, it's not in terms of mercy. It's not in terms of goodness, even though that probably is part of the reason. She explains it in terms of power. You know, Woland is all about justice, as we've seen. You know, he magnanimously offers a gift to Margarita because she is too proud to ask for it. And all of this is within what Woland understands and what Woland wants to do. This is within the logic of his system. So when Margarita starts talking about mercy, well, it's not in terms of mercy, which is outside of Woland's system. It's in terms of responsibility. She believes in my power, and if she's left disappointed, I'll be in a terrible position. I owe it to her, she says. I told her I would do it, now I'm duty-bound to follow through, and if I don't, then that will make me a worse person. I will not be just. That, Woland understands, and says so. Ah, that's understandable. But notice, as Margarita asks, will you do it? Woland replies, by no means. The thing is, dear Queen, that a little confusion has taken place here. Each department must look after its own affairs. I don't deny our possibilities are rather great. They're much greater than some not very keen people may think. Yes, a whole lot greater. The cat, obviously proud of these possibilities, put in, unable to restrain himself. Quiet, devil take you, Woolen said to him and went on addressing Margarita. But there is simply no sense in doing what ought to be done by another, as I just put it, department. And so I will not do it, but you will do it yourself. And will it be done at my word? Azazello gave Margarita an ironic look out of the corner of his blind eye, shook his red head imperceptibly, and snorted, Just do it. What a pain. Notice, Woland will not take mercy on Frieda. Not because he doesn't want to, not because he doesn't want to. There's no sort of indication where Woland sits as far as mercy is concerned. He is frustrated that it has crept into his home despite his best efforts, but as he emphasizes, it's not a matter of whether he will or won't do it, whether he wants to or not. It's a matter of jurisdiction. It is not Woland's job to do mercy. It belongs to another department, as he puts it. Woland is justice. God is mercy. And as much as we've been spending so much of this book talking about the way that evil works, the way the devil works, the way that hell works, the way that punishment works, the way that justice works, we haven't spent much time at all talking about what heaven would look like by contrast. This is the one glimpse we're really going to get of it at this point. Heaven is about mercy, where Woland and the devil and hell is about justice. Notice that these are not bad things. Like, justice is opposed to mercy, for sure, but both are good things. Mercy is opposed to justice as, in some ways, being better than justice, as being kinder than justice. Justice is appropriate. Justice is always appropriate. Justice is always fair. And yet, in some situations, like the case of Frieda, something more than fairness is appropriate. It is fair that she is tormented for her crime. It is merciful that she stops being tormented but it's not Woland's to do so he tells her margarita you do it and when she asks like will it be done at my command everybody just laughs like azazello is he gives this ironic look Woland says just do it it's not a matter of will it be done at her command she has the power to do it 
at this moment. Like, it's not given to her. It was always hers. Which leads me to wonder, like, how much Margarita could actually do in this situation altogether. It's unclear. But at the very least, the mercy is hers to give. By assuming that authority, as she emphasized to Wolin just moments ago, she received that authority. By being the hostess of hell, she temporarily, or at least in this particular case, became mistress of hell, became able to decide how torments and punishments would be meted. So she says, Frieda, and the door flew open and a disheveled naked woman, now showing no signs of drunkenness, ran into the room with frenzied eyes and stretched her arms out to Margarita, who said majestically, you are forgiven. The handkerchief will no longer be brought to you. Frieda's scream rang out. She fell face bent down on the floor and prostrated in a cross before Margarita. Woland waved his hand and Frieda vanished from sight. Notice, again, Woland kind of dismissively ends this scene, presumably because, again, it's not his business, it's not his jurisdiction. He is, if anything, impatient with it, in the same way that you would expect someone whose entire life is about justice to be impatient with mercy. So Frieda shows up, Margarita pardons her, and Wolin just like is whisks her out. Done. Let this scene be over with. But notice, too, that this doesn't count. Well, Behemoth, began Wolin, let's not take advantage of the action of an impractical person on a festive night. He turned to Margarita, and so that does not count. I did nothing. What do you want for yourself? Remember, Margarita asked for one thing decided it would be Frieda, gave up the master in doing so, and yet Woland, majestically, and in a sort of backwards act of mercy of his own, tells her that he didn't have any part in it. Mercy was never her, his jurisdiction, and therefore Margarita, entirely under her own steam and power, did it for herself. Therefore, this does not count as the boon granted to her. That did not count. I did nothing. What do you want for yourself? And notice Koroviev whispers in Margarita's ear, Diamond Donna, this time I advise you to be more reasonable, or else fortune may slip away. This is it. Last chance. Don't mess up again. Like, yes, you got your, your freebie. You, you get your mulligan, but don't try it again. So she asks, I want my beloved master to be returned to me right now, this second, said Margarita, and her face was contorted by a spasm, and it happens. Here a wind burst into the rooms as the flames of the candles in the candelabra were flattened. The heavy curtain on the window moved aside. The window opened wide and revealed far away on high a full, not morning, but midnight moon. A greenish square of night light fell from the window sill to the floor, and in it appeared Ivanushka's night visitor who called himself a master. He was in his hospital clothes, robes, slippers, and the black cap with which he never parted. His unshaven face twitched in a grimace. He glanced sidelong with a crazy timorousness at the lights of the candles and the torrent of moonlight seethed around him. Margarita recognized him at once, gave a moan, clasped her hands and ran to him. She kissed him on the forehead, on the lips, pressed herself to his stubbly cheek, and her long held back tears now streamed down her face. She uttered only one word, repeating it senselessly. You, you, you. Margarita and the Master are, at long last, reunited. Here, like three-quarters of the way through the book. Which itself actually seems a bit early when you think about it, but we'll come back to that. Notice, though, that the Master is now understood to be sick. 
broken. There's something wrong with him. Now, you'll remember way back in Goethe's Faust, we talked about the scene where Faust and Margarita are reunited in the, in the prison cell. And at this point, Margarita has lost her wits. She's utterly insane. She doesn't even recognize Faust when he arrives. And when she does finally recognize him, he's fallen out of love with her. Something strangely parallel is happening here. The master is glad to see Margarita. Like once he, you know, gives up the fact that it's, or gives up the possibility of it being a hallucination, once he admits that it's her, he's incredibly glad to see her. But something else is gone out of him. He describes himself as being mentally ill, as having come from, you know, the sanitarium, which brings Margarita to tears all over again. But what's more, there's something messed up about the master at this point. He's lost his will, in short, um, which is kind of odd. Um, now, we get this discussion, like this sort of comes out in bits and bobs here. So let's sort of pick up on a few of the things that sort of lead us to this conclusion. First off, he talks about his, his novel. But tell me, Woland asks, why does Margarita call you a master? The man smiled and said, that is an excusable weakness. She has too high an opinion of a novel I wrote. What is this novel about? It is a novel about Pontius Pilate. Here again the tongues of the candles swayed and leaped, the dishes on the table clattered. Woolen burst into thunderous laughter, but neither frightened nor surprised anyone. Behemoth applauded for some reason. About what? About what? About whom? said Woolen, ceasing to laugh. And that now? It's stupendous. Couldn't you have found some other subject? Let me see it. Woolen held out his hand, palm up. Unfortunately, I cannot do that, replied the master, because I burned it in the stove. Forgive me. But I don't believe you, Woland replied. That cannot be. Manuscripts don't burn. He turned to Behemoth and said, Come on, Behemoth, let's have the novel. The cat instantly jumped off the chair, and everyone saw that he had been sitting on a thick stack of manuscripts. With a bow, the cat gave the top copy to Woland. Margarita trembled and cried out, again shaken to the point of tears, It's here! The manuscript! It's here! Notice a couple of things about this sequence here. First off, notice the master has given up. Like, he is broken. He considers himself mentally ill. When Margarita calls him a master, he says that it's a weakness, that it is an exaggeration. She has too high an opinion of a novel that I wrote. But notice the miracle slips right under his nose. Like, the master doesn't even seem to respond to this all that much. Like, Margarita is thrilled at the appearance of the manuscript, but the master, not so much. But notice the line here. Notice the line that Wolin gives us. That can't be. Manuscripts don't burn. Now remember, when we talked about the master way back in his original chapter, The Hero Enters, I mentioned that Bulgakov had a very similar experience. That he had written his novel about Pilate and Jesus, the very novel that appears in this book, that he ultimately thought it too dangerous, that the censors would have their way with it, that the secret police would be after him, so he burned it. He burned it in his own fireplace, just the same way that the master describes burning his own manuscript. And likewise, I stress that Bulgakov considered this cowardice, an important word in the next couple of chapters. In short, Bulgakov gave up on truth. And the master gave up on truth. 
But notice Wolin's reply that manuscripts don't burn. That there's something incredibly powerful about this statement. You know, you think of like the ideas are bulletproof line from V for Vendetta. Like there's something that endures about ideas, about manuscripts, about novels, about works that were created, even if they were disposed of or destroyed or censored or hidden. Manuscripts don't burn, Wolin says. Somehow in the cosmic justice of the universe, that's not how these things work. By setting pen to paper, no matter what the circumstances, the master committed something eternal did something that cannot be destroyed. And notice what this means for both the master and Bulgakov. Notice that Bulgakov, this means hope. That despite the fact that he destroyed his own manuscript, somehow it endures. And it has. This miracle is real. You're holding the book. Like, if you're looking at it, if you're touching it, if you're holding it, like, I'm sitting here with the copy in my hand. I've got another copy on my shelf and another copy by another translator and another shelf in my room. Like, this is a miraculous thing. Bulgakov destroyed his own manuscript, and yet here we are reading it. Because he recreated it. Because on some level, in some capacity, the idea was retained. The secret police could, you know, confiscate all of his papers, destroy his apartment, burn it to the ground, brainwash him six ways from Sunday, and the idea would still be there. They could kill him, and the idea would still have lived, and therefore cannot be extinguished. Manuscripts don't burn, Olin tells us. But look at the master's response. Wolin took the manuscript that had been handed to him, turned it over, laid it aside, and silently, without smiling, stared at the master. But he, for some unknown reason, lapsed into anxiety and uneasiness, got up from the chair, wrung his hands, and quivering as he addressed the distant moon, began to murmur, And at night, by moonlight, I have no peace. Why am I being troubled? Oh, gods, gods. Now the moon... There's some heavy-duty symbolism that's been going on with the moon that I have not been talking about thus far, but will become incredibly clear in the next couple chapters, so let's put a pin in that. Um, but notice that this doesn't comfort the master. The miraculous reappearance of the manuscript does not bring peace to him. He is still sick. He is still broken. Now notice Margarita's just getting more and more reinvigorated with every passing moment. Notice how quickly Margarita bounces back from her dismay. Like at the very beginning of her first chapter, back at the beginning of part two, she was ready to commit suicide. She was at the brink of despair. And yet between the cream and drinking, you know, the blood and being bathed in blood, and like over and over throughout this, this section, throughout the ball at Satan's and throughout the chapters before and afterwards, she is constantly reinvigorated. Like, joy surges up in her over and over again with every new passing revelation. And now that the Master is restored to her, she's almost back to her full, complete self. When the manuscript is restored, she considers it a miracle. She's thrilled. She's excited beyond belief. But it brings the Master no joy. The Master betrayed that manuscript. The fact that it's back, miraculous though it may be, 
doesn't fix what the master did. If the manuscript didn't burn, if the idea is permanent, well, so is the betrayal. So is the fact that the master destroyed the manuscript, or attempted to, foolishly, thinking that somehow that would save him. That's not how it works, though. He was a coward. He, like all of those people that Woland has been judging throughout this entire book, hid the truth, covered it up, pretended like it wasn't a thing for the sake of saving his own skin. And that can't be so easily fixed. But notice that we've still got more to do here. Like, as much as this sort of puts a dampener on the rediscovery of the manuscript, of that powerful line that manuscripts don't burn, it's still not over yet. And as much as the Master has physically been restored to Margarita, well, there's still more that needs to be fixed before they can really enjoy each other's company. So, Margarita even says here, Oh God, why doesn't the medicine help you? And Koroviev gives him a glass, and they like give him more booze, and it helps maybe a little bit, but it's not enough. Like, to the point that Azazel even says, I say that it would be a good thing to drown you. And yet, weirdly, we get, Have mercy, Azazello, the cat replied to him, and don't suggest the idea to my sovereign. Believe me, every night I'd come to you in the same moonlight garb as the poor master and nod and beckon to you to follow me. How would that be, Azazello? Well, Margarita, Woland again answered the conversation, tell me everything you need. Woland realizes that he's cheated her, that this is not what she asked for, that she wanted the master restored to her, fully, the master as he was, but that's going to prove a little bit more difficult than just springing him from the insane asylum. So she whispers something to him, which we're told later is the most tempting thing, and yet Woolen tells her that it isn't at all the most tempting thing, and yet that too doesn't do it. Here the master laughed and embracing Margarita's long-since-uncurled head said, Ah, don't listen to the poor woman, Messiah. Someone else has long been living in the basement, and generally it never happens that anything goes back to what it used to be. He put his cheek to his friend's head, embraced Margarita, and began muttering, My poor one, my poor one. Notice the conviction here of the masters. Generally it never happens that anything goes back to what it used to be. You can't turn back the clock. You can't undo what has been done. So there's a lot of physical obstacles, and we get through them pretty quickly, honestly. But let's start with this first issue, the apartment. Someone else has been long been living in the basement, he says, and, of course, Wolin summons him. Never happens, you say, said Wolin. That's true, but we shall try. And he called out, Azazello! At once there dropped from the ceiling onto the floor a bewildered and nearly delirious citizen in nothing but his underwear, though with a suitcase in his hand for some reason, and wearing a cap. This man trembled with fear and kept cowering. Mogarich? Azazello asked of the one fallen from the sky. Aloisi Mogarich, the man answered, shivering. Was it you who, after reading Latunsky's article about this man's novel, wrote a denunciation saying that he kept illegal literature? asked Azazello. The newly arrived citizen turned blue and dissolved in tears of repentance. You wanted to move into his rooms? Azazello twanged as soulfully as he could. Notice what is revealed here. It wasn't Latunsky or Ariman or the denunciation in the, the periodicals that got the master arrested. 
it was his neighbor. Aloisi Mogarich read Latunsky's article, accused the master to the secret police of harboring illegal literature, and did so specifically so he could steal the master's apartment. Remember, we've seen this before. When Berlioz dies, all of those people are clamoring to get into his apartment because, again, the apartment situation in Soviet Moscow is such an enormous mess. Remember, too, that when the devil at the great, you know, the Black Magic and its Exposure show said, you know, they are ordinary people. It's just the housing problem that has corrupted them. Aloisi Mogarich is a fink. He is a dick. He totally sold out the master in order to get his apartment. This is just the sort of awful behavior that the devil has been punishing this entire novel. So they summon him. And notice Margarita's reaction. The hissing of an infuriated cat was heard in the room, and Margarita, with a howl of, No, a witch when you see one, sank her nails into Aloisi Mogarich's face. Like she's trying to rip his face off. A commotion ensued, Polgarkov says, fairly, you know, as probably the understatement of the novel. What are you doing? The master cried painfully. Margo, don't disgrace yourself. I protest. It's not a disgrace, shouted the cat. Notice, Behemoth stands up for her here. Aloisi Mogarich totally deserves Margarita tearing his face off with her fingernails. Again, justice is being done, and Margarita is absolutely right to do this. Aloisi Mogarich nearly got the master killed over this apartment thing. He absolutely abused this tiny position of power. He absolutely did this cowardly, finkish behavior, selling him out to the secret police for the sake of his own profit. That's messed up. And he absolutely deserves Margarita tearing his face off. But Kurovia pulls Margarita away. I put in a bathroom, the bloodied Mogarich cried, his teeth chattering. And terrified, he began pouring out some balderdash. The whitewashing alone, the vitriol. Well, it's nice that you put in a bathroom, Azazello said approvingly. He needs to take baths. And he yelled, out! Then Mogarich was turned upside down and left Woolen's bedroom through the open window. Notice, Aloisi Mogarich is, to some degree, the biggest villain of all at this point. Like, as much as Latunsky and Aramon are absolutely horrible people for, you know, screwing over the master with their, their denunciations in print, and they are definitely to blame, and Latunsky absolutely gets his by when Margarita tears up his apartment, Aloysi Mogarich is the, the opportunistic one. If Latunsky and Aramon were just covering their butts, Aloysi Mogarich is the rat who was doing just fine and didn't need to hurt anyone and did anyway. He's the dick who was an op a profiteering opportunist. When the master was vulnerable, Aloisi Mogarich pounced on him. And as a result, he's flung upside down out the window, and good riddance, because screw that guy. He is the worst. Notice Azazello's remark here. Thank you for putting in a bathroom. He needs to take baths. You will not be able to enjoy the bathroom anymore. Get out, he says. The master goggled his eyes, whispering, Now that's maybe even neater than what Ivan described. Thoroughly astonished, he looked around and finally said to the cat, But forgive me, was it you? Was it you, sir? He faltered, not knowing how to address a cat. Are you that same cat, sir, who got on the tram? And of course, Behemoth is very flattered by the way that the master is talking to him, as though he were some kind of celebrity. And he's like, 
I am, the flattered cat confirmed and added. It's pleasing to hear you address a cat so politely. For some reason, cats are usually addressed familiarly, though no cat has ever drunk Bruderschaft with anyone. Bruderschaft is like the ceremony by which you drink uh, alcohol and then agree to use the informal form of address with one another. Um, it's kind of like tu versus vu in French, and there's a similar thing in Spanish, though I'm not as familiar with it. Um, notice that Behemoth is very flattered when the master like speaks up to him. But notice, too, that there are other obstacles, and Wolin just dismisses them one at a time. Like, okay, so we've gotten Aloysi Mogarich out of the apartment. Well, you know, there's still all of these papers that we need to deal with. Like, they're going to find that he's missing at the hospital, and Wolin suddenly magics up all the papers from the hospital. And... Kuroviev chucks him into the fireplace. Well, what about the personal papers? Like, what about his passport and stuff? Yep, poof, here they are. What about the, the records of the landlord? Like, Aloysi Mogarich is still on the books. Nope, not anymore. They change the books and they whisk him off right back to the landlord's desk. All of it dealt with. Bing, bang, boom. All the paperwork completed. But, even when we say, that's all, Messiah, all the paperwork is taken care of, then Wolin needs to ask about her retinue. All of the people that that um, Margarita has sort of like attached to herself at various points over the night. So he had to deal with Natasha first. Natasha still wants to be a witch, so Margarita asks it of Woland, and yes, we agree, Natasha gets to stay a witch. Hooray! Then we get Nikolai Ivanovich, the pig, who, you know, was on the bottom floor and apparently indecently proposed poor Natasha. Um, we get... Uh, to deal with him and he's just like indifferent like nobody gives a crap about him like he didn't do anything wrong so to speak so he doesn't deserve punishment but he's not like you know doing anything heroic he's just sort of involved so notice how we deal with him in Natasha's place, Nikolai Ivanovich now stood. He had regained his former human shape, but was extremely glum and perhaps even annoyed. This is someone I shall dismiss with special pleasure, said Woland, looking at Nikolai Ivanovich with disgust. With exceptional pleasure, so superfluous he is here. Notice that he's disgusted by him, not because he's bad, but because he just doesn't belong. Like, what are we doing with this guy? He doesn't, th th there's no point. He's just excess, superfluous, he says, unnecessary. He's just you know, here for some stupid reason. Notice Nikolai Ivanovich, though. He says, I earnestly beg that you issue me a certificate as to where I spent last night. For what purpose? The cat asks sternly. For the purpose of presenting it to the police and to my wife, Nikolai Ivanovich said firmly. We normally don't issue certificates, the cat replied, frowning, but very well for you, we'll make an exception. And the cat dictates to Hella this certificate, which they type up at the typewriter. It is hereby certified that the bearer, Nikolai Ivanovich, spent the said night at Satan's Ball, having been summoned there in the capacity of a means of transportation, open parentheses, hog, close parentheses, signed Behemoth. He gets his certificate. They, like, whisk him out the door, carrying his certificate. Yep, I, Ivan Nikol, or I... Nikolai Ivanovich was at Satan's Ball in the person of a transporting pig so his wife and the police won't get mad at him? Yeah, like that certificate's gonna fly with his wife. Like, he's gonna come home and be like, well, I was at Satan's Grand Ball. Here's my certificate to prove it. Like, what? But anyway, they get rid of him. And finally we get, of all people, Veronuka. 
And even Woland is kind of thro thrown by this. And who is this one? Woland asked squeamishly, shielding himself from the candlelight with his hand. Veronuka hung his head, sighed, and said softly, Let me go back. I can't be a vampire. I almost did Rimsky in that time with Hela, and I'm not bloodthirsty. Let me go. Somehow, Veronuka is still around. Remember how we vampirized him? Like, Hela, you know, sank his or kissed him and now he's a vampire and he like almost killed Rimsky. They had to disappear because, you know, the cock crowed. Veronuka doesn't want to be a vampire anymore. Like he's, he's not bloodthirsty enough. He, he's not evil enough. So he asks to not be a vampire. And Azazello says, kindly do not worry, Messiah. Mustn't be rude on the telephone. Mustn't tell lies on the telephone. Understand? Will you do it again? Everything went giddy with joy in Veronuka's head, his face beamed, and not knowing what he was saying, he began to murmur, Verily, that is, I mean to say, you're met right, uh, right after dinner. Veronuka pressed his hands to his chest, looking beseechingly at Azazello. All right, home with you, the latter said, and Veronuka dissolved. So they tie up a lot of the loose ends here. Natasha's taken care of, Nikolai Ivanovich is taken care of, and now Veronuka is also dealt with. He is... I guess de-vampirized, however that works. Whatever. But this doesn't deal with the central problem. Like, as much as we've taken care of all of these people, all of these issues with Margarita, it doesn't resolve the central issue. So Woland says, Now all of you leave me alone with them, ordered Woland, pointing to the master and Margarita. Woland's order was obeyed instantly. After some silence, Woland said to the master, So it's back to the Arbot basement. And who is going to write? And the dreams? The inspiration? I have no more dreams. Or inspiration either, replied the master. Nothing around me interests me except her. He again put his hand on Margarita's head. I'm broken. I'm bored. And I want to be in the basement. And your novel, Pilot? It's hateful to me, this novel, replied the master. I went through too much because of it. I implore you, Margarita begged plaintively, don't talk like that. Why do you torment me? You know I put my whole life into this work. Turning to Woolen, Margarita also added, don't listen to him, Messiah, he's too worn out. But you must write about something, said Woolen. If you've exhausted the procurator, well, then why not start portraying, say, this Aloisi? The master smiled. Lapshinakova wouldn't publish that, and besides, it's not interesting. And what are you going to live on? You'll have a beggarly existence, willingly. Willingly, replied the master, drawing Margarita to him. He put his arm around her shoulders and added, She'll see reason. She'll leave me. And I doubt that, Woolen said through his teeth and went on. And so, the man who wrote the story of Pontius Pilate goes to the basement with the intention of settling by the lamp and leading a beggarly existence. I did all I could, Margarita says. I whispered the most tempting thing to him, and he refused. I know what you whispered to him, Woolen retorted, but it is not the most tempting thing. And to you I say, he turned, smiling to the master, that your novel will still bring you surprises. That's very sad, replied the master. No, no, it's not sad, said Woolen. Nothing terrible. Well, Margarita Nikolaevna, it has all been done. Do you have any claims against me? How can you, oh, how can you, Messire? Then take this from me as a memento, said Woland, and he gives her a small golden horseshoe, which turns out to have its own adventures when it, like, falls out of her pocket or something, and then, like, the random lady on the stairs picks it up. This whole thing ensues. But what I want to emphasize is that this doesn't fix it. As much as the master has been restored, like, he has escaped from the asylum, 
The apartment goes back into his name. Everything, at least as Woland is able to do, goes back to the way it was, the way that the Master didn't think it could. But what doesn't go back to the way it was is the Master himself. He is broken. He is bored, as he says. He doesn't have anything to interest him. This probably comes close to what the psychologists call anhedonia. There's no, no joy in it for him anymore. The one thing that he poured his heart and soul into, the one thing that he found all his joy in, the one thing that Margareta invested all her joy in, became a source of incredible displeasure, of horror, of pain. It destroyed him, in short, because he invested so much in it. And that's why Wolin can't fix that. That's more than he can do. Now, they do go back to the apartment. They do go back to the little basement apartment and everything, you know, goes back to what it should be. And at this point, Margarita decides to read through the manuscript, which is where we pick it up. We find in chapter 25 how the procurator tried to save Judas of Kiriath, and it starts with the very same line that Margarita was reading obsessively, the last line that had survived the burning of the manuscript. The darkness that came from the Mediterranean Sea covered the city hated by the procurator. We get the end-ish of the pilot novel. And I want to emphasize what we see here. Like, there isn't... There's a lot of dense description here. There's a lot of sort of stuff that happens, but not a whole lot of valuable theolo or like thematic or, or you know insights as far as what Bulgakov is talking about. The couple of things, I, I do want to draw them out. But I do want to sort of emphasize the tone here. And I want to emphasize how this passage relates to what the Master has undergone at this point. So, brief overview of, like, what happens in the two chapters, how the Procurator tried to save Judas of Kiriath and the burial. Um, so, Pilate is apparently, you know, back at home after the execution, and he has a visitor. And this visitor is apparently his secret agent. Um, he is a Roman troop of some kind. He is part of, like, the, the centuries, the, the troops that are stationed there. But his role seems to be basically serving Pilate directly. Now, this guy we've seen before. He was at the trial of Yeshua. He was at the execution. Um, he apparently reports directly to Pilate, and he gets stuff done, whatever that stuff seems to be. And Pilate has this conversation with him. Um, they, he asks him about the execution, asks them if anything strange happened, as we've already seen, you know, nothing happened, no rebellion, no nothing, like, we expected something weird to, to go down, but nothing really did, nothing miraculous, nothing, you know, revolutionary, and Pilate tells, instructs him first that he wants him to take the three bodies from the top of the hill and bury them, secretly somewhere far away presumably with the intention that his followers aren't gonna like make a big deal out of this we're gonna come back to this but the second thing he asks is about judas the guy who betrayed yeshua and again this is biblical as well like i stressed in the the second chapter judas is the famous betrayer the one who you know satan is devouring perpetually in dante um he is the one who sold Jesus out, sold Yeshua out for 30 pieces of silver, here tetradrachmas. 
Um, and Pilate gives his follower, Aphranius, some pretty curious instructions about this. Um, so we have this conversation. We're talking about the, the merit, the, the like, Pilate frequently compliments uh, Aphranius on, on how great he is at doing his job, whatever job that may in fact be. Um, but Pilate reveals to Aphranius that apparently there is a plot against Judas's life tonight. So if you look on page 307, he says, Ah, so, 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 so. Here the procurator, procurator fell silent, looked around to be sure that there was no one on the balcony, and then said quietly, The thing is this. I have just received information that he is going to be killed tonight. This time the guest not only cast his glance at the procurator, but even held it briefly, and after that replied, You spoke too flatteringly of me, procurator. In my opinion, I do not deserve your report. The, this information I do not have. Aphranius, who is very connected, it seems, who has heard all about Judas and knows what Judas is up to and knows that Judas betrayed Yeshua in the first place, hasn't heard that there's a plot on Judas's life. Which is for good reason. As we've already established, like Pilate mentioned this during the trial, there's no evidence of any connection between Yeshua and any number of revolutionaries or followers. Like the only, quote, disciple of, of Yeshua that we've seen that there is any evidence that exists at all is Matthew. And he's kind of cracked. Like, nobody's going to take him seriously. And Matthew, all by himself, definitely doesn't have any of the connections necessary to pull off the assassination of Judas of Cariath, himself protected by Caiaphas and the priesthood. Like, Judas is working for the high priest, therefore there's probably some decent cover for him. So there's no reason why Judas would be betrayed. Like, Jesus doesn't have followers in this case, so why would Judas be in danger? You deserve the highest reward, the procurator replied, but there is such information. May I be so bold as to ask who supplied it? Aphranius asked. Permit me not to say for the time being, the more so as it, as it is accidental, obscure, and uncertain, but it is my duty to foresee everything. That is my job, and most of all, I must trust my presentiment, for it has never yet deceived me. The information is that one of Hanosri's secret friends, indignant at this money changer's monstrous betrayal, is plotting with his accomplices to kill him tonight, and to foist the money paid for the betrayal on the high priest, with a note. I return the cursed money. Notice how specific Pilate is being about the details here. The head of the Secret Service cast no more of his unexpected glances at the hegemon, but went on listening to him, narrowing his eyes as Pilate went on. Imagine, is it going to be pleasant for the high priest to receive such a gift on the night of the feast? Not only not pleasant, the guest replied, smiling, but I believe, procurator, that it will cause a very great scandal. I'm of the same opinion myself, and therefore I ask you to occupy yourself with this matter, that is, to take all measures to protect Judas of Kiriath. The hegemon's order will be carried out, said Aphranius. But I must reassure the hegemon, the evildoer's plot is very hard to bring off. Only think, the guest looked over his shoulder as he spoke and went on, to track the man down, to kill him, and besides that to find out how much he got, and manage to return the money to Kaifa, and all that in one night, tonight? And nonetheless, he will be killed tonight, Pilate stubbornly repeated. I have a presentiment, I tell you. Never once has it deceived me. Here a spasm passed over the procurator's face, and he rubbed his hands briskly. This is cryptic. But if you follow what happens later, you'll see what is going on here. Aphranius reports back to his, you know, garrison, 
He gets dressed in plain clothes and then meets with a woman named Niza. Niza herself leaves about five minutes after the, the Ephranius shows up, goes out in the streets, and, shocker, meets Judas. Judas is apparently on his way from something to something, and he's apparently madly in love with Niza, so Niza schedules a meeting between the two of them. Niza says to meet me at this secluded location out by the olive groves, in this little grotto, and Judas does. He goes by secret ways, following behind her, but at some distance he finally gets the olive grove, and at that point he's jumped. Two thugs show up, and one of them stabs him. The other one takes the money from him. Now, it would seem that poor Ephranius was not able to protect Judas after all. But that's not exactly what's going on here. It seems more likely that Ephranius was told by Pilate to kill Judas. That this whole scene where Pilate is telling him to protect Judas of Kiriath in such exquisite detail about how this needs to be done is actually a hit. Now, neither Ephranius nor Pilate ever admits this. The one time that Pilate lets us slip is when he's talking to Matthew Levi, and we'll get to that. But it seems pretty likely that Pilate plans and executes Judas. But notice how he thinks about this. During this process, Pilate has a dream. Shortly before he meets with Afranius, like he tells Afranius to come back to him after he's, you know, done his job, whatever that job may have been. And Pilate specifically sleeps outside for that purpose. Remember, Afranius is a Jew and therefore cannot be under the same roof as Pilate, so they specifically sleep outside so the meeting can still happen. Now, after Judas's death, we get this description of Pilate asleep and dreaming. So look at page 319. Approximately at midnight, sleep finally took pity on the hegemon. With a spasmodic yawn, the procurator unfastened and threw off his cloak, removed the belt girded over his shirt with a broad steel knife in a sheath, placed it on the chair by the couch, took off his sandals and stretched out. Banga got on the bed at once and lay down next to him, head to head, and the procurator, placing his head, hand on the dog's neck, finally closed his eyes. Only then did the dog also fall asleep. The couch was in semi-darkness, shielded from the moon by a column, but a ribbon of moonlight stretched from the porch steps to the bed. And once the procurator lost connection with what surrounded him in reality, he immediately set out on the shining road and went up it, straight towards the moon. He even burst out laughing in his sleep from happiness, so wonderful and inimitable did everything come to be on the transparent pale blue road. He walked in the company of Banga, and beside him walked the wandering philosopher. They were arguing about something very complex and important, and neither of them could refute the other. They did not agree with each other in anything, and that made their argument especially interesting and endless. It went without saying that today's execution proved to be a sheer misunderstanding. Here this philosopher, who had thought up such an incredibly absurd thing as that all men are good, was walking beside him, therefore he was alive. And of course it would be terrible even to think that one could execute such a man. There had been no execution. No execution. That was the loveliness of this journey up the stairway of the moon. There was as much free time as they needed, and the storm would come only toward evening, and cowardice was undoubtedly one of the most terrible vices. Thus spoke Yeshua HaNozri. No, philosopher, I disagree with you. It is the most terrible vice. See, we were told by Ephranius that the last thing that, Je that Yeshua said before going up to the scaffold, before being put on the cross, 
was that cowardice is the most terrible vice. And this hits Pilate like a ton of bricks. This is one of the central themes that Bulgakov has been emphasizing all along. Cowardice is what has caused all this suffering, and it is what Woland has been punishing since the very first chapter of the book. It's cowardice that got Berlio decapitated. It's cowardice that caused Pilate to kill Yeshua, to have him executed rather than stand up to the emperor and possibly risk his neck. It's cowardice that caused the master and Bulgakov himself to burn their manuscripts. And it's courage that so characterizes Margareta. Her courage stands in stark contrast to all of this cowardice. Even Ivan Homeless and speaking the truth about Pilate and Berlioz is performing courage. Cowardice leads to lies, lies to injustice. Courage, the truth, protects us all from that. And that's what the devil has been doing since the very beginning of this book. And Han Nozri, Yeshua, says the same. Cowardice is the worst of all of the vices. And this burns Pilate. Notice where we go from here. He, for example, the present procurator of Judea and former tribune of a legion, had been no coward that time in the Valley of the Virgins when the fierce Germani had almost torn Ratslayer the Giant to pieces. Remember, he saved Ratslayer's life by jumping into the fray, by fighting off all those Germans. But good heavens, philosopher, how can you, with your intelligence, allow yourself to think that for the sake of a man who has committed a crime against Caesar, the procurator of Judea would ruin his career? Pilate was very courageous in battle, but he was a coward when he decided to condemn Yeshua, despite the fact that he was innocent, despite the fact that he deserved mercy, the fact that he hadn't committed any real crime. Yes, yes, Pilate moaned and sobbed in his sleep. Of course he would. In the morning he still would not. But now, at night, after weighing everything, he would agree to ruin it. He would do everything to save the decidedly innocent, mad dreamer and healer from execution. Now we shall always be together, said the ragged, wandering philosopher in his dream, who for some unknown reason had crossed paths with the equestrian of the golden spear. Where there is one of us straight away, there will be the other. Wherever, whenever I am remembered, you will at once be remembered too. I, the foundling, the son of unknown parents, and you, the son of an astrologer king and a miller's daughter, the beautiful P P Pila. But notice, this is just a dream. When he wakes up, it says the first thing the procurator did was to clutch Banga's collar with a habitual gesture. Then with sick eyes, he began searching for the moon. He remembers the moon. He remembers that it's not true, that it didn't happen, that he did in fact execute Yeshua Hanazri. He opened his eyes, and the first thing he remembered was that the execution had been. There's no way out of it. He had done the cowardly thing. He had committed the ultimate vice. He had condemned Yeshua to death. But he also emphasizes that he's trying to do better. He's trying to fix things by having Judas killed, by having the body buried out of the city secretly where no one knows. But it seems insufficient. Notice 
that after his discussion with Afranius, after he confirms that yes, Judas was killed, and Afranius drops several hints as to where they'll likely find the body, and you know why the murder probably happened, and maybe it was even suicide, Pilate suggests, which is the story that we get in the Gospels, that Judas committed suicide. Pilate's version of events seems to have taken. But notice too that the last person the procurator talks to is actual, actually Matthew Levi. Turns out, Afranius went to bury the bodies, and as we already knew, one of them was missing. Remember, in the burial chapter, Matthew Levi snuck off with the body of Yeshua. And I emphasize that there's this whole, you know, theory among atheists that the reason why, you know, the body had disappeared from the tomb was because the disciples had stolen it. I emphasize that perhaps this was Bulgakov's way of explaining that, that Matthew had snuck the body away. But notice, the body gets found. Like, apparently Matthew did not get far. And there's this whole discussion between Matthew and the guards who went to, to bury the bodies. They take the body back from him. And in the process, Pilate gets, to, gets a look at, um, at Matthew's ledger, like the, the book that he's been writing, where he's been recording all of the things that Yeshua has you know, said and written down. Now notice, on page 329, we get to see this as well. Levi fumbled in his bosom and produced a parchment scroll. Pilate took it, unrolled it, spread it out between the lights, and squinting, began to study the barely legible ink marks. It was difficult to understand these crabbed lines, and Pilate kept wincing and leaning right to the parchment, running his finger over the lines. He did manage to make out that the writing represented an incoherent chain of certain utterances, certain dates, household records, and poetic fragments. Some of it Pilate could read. There is no death. Yesterday we ate sweet spring Bakaroth. Grimacing with the effort, Pilate squinted as he read, We shall see the pure river of the water of life. Mankind shall look at the sun through transparent crystal. Here Pilate gave a start. In the last lines of the parchment, he made out the words, Greater vice, cowardice. Matthew recorded Yeshua's last words, even though Matthew probably wasn't present to hear them, strangely enough. But at any rate, notice too that Matthew denies the death. He says that Yeshua remains alive. He, in short, is writing about the resurrection. And notice Pilate's response here. Notice that, again, if I am right in my theory that Bulgakov is, you know, justifying the, the story of Christianity by Matthew Levi sneaking the body out and, you know, secretly burying it, Pilate follows through with that. Pilate makes the lie that Matthew Levi told more believable. Notice that he does not have Yeshua publicly buried. No, he secretly buries them out under a rock somewhere, and Aphranius tells him where he can find the body, like what the marker looks like. But notice, too, what he does for Matthew Levi. Um, he offers to Levi a job. He says, take it and gives, it the, gives the parchment back to Matthew Levi. You're a bookish man, I see, and there's no need for you to go around here in, alone in beggar's clothing without shelter. I have a big library in Caesarea. I am very rich and want to take you to work for me. You will sort out and look after the papyri. You will be fed and clothed. Notice, this is roughly the same offer that Pilate was thinking about with Yeshua originally, that he was going to have Yeshua brought out of the city to Caesarea near where his home is. And Matthew Levi originally resists this. 
No, I don't want to. Why? the procurator asked, his face darkening. Am I disagreeable to you? Are you afraid of me? The same bad smile distorted Levi's face, and he said, No, because you'll be afraid of me. It won't be very easy for you to look me in the face now that you've killed him. Quiet, replied Pilate. Take some money. I know you consider yourself a disciple of Yeshua, but I can tell you that you learned nothing of what he taught you. For if you had, you would certainly take something from me. Bear in mind that before he died, he said he did not blame anyone. Pilate raised a finger significantly. Pilate's face was twitching, and he himself would surely have taken something. You were cruel, and he was not cruel. Where will you go? And Matthew Levi explains, well, he has someone to kill. No, Hegemon, that I am going to kill a man in the Yerushalayim. I wanted to tell you that so that you'd know there will be more blood. I too know there will be more of it, replied Pilate. You haven't surprised me with your words. You want, of course, to kill me. You I won't manage to kill, replied Levi, baring his teeth and smiling. I'm not such a foolish man as to count on that, but I'll kill Judas of Kiriath. I'll devote the rest of my life to it. Here pleasure showed in the procurator's eyes, and beckoning Matthew Levi to come closer, he said, You won't manage to do it. Don't trouble yourself. Judas has already been killed this night. Levi sprang away from the table, looking wildly around, and cried out, Who did it? Don't be jealous, Pilate answered, his teeth bared, and rubbed his hands. I'm afraid he had other admirers besides you. Who did it? Levi repeated in a whisper. Pilate answered him, I did it. Levi opened his mouth and stared at the procurator, who said quietly, It is, of course, not much to have done, but all the same, I did it. And he added, Well, and now will you take something? Levi considered, relented, and finally said, Have them give me a piece of clean parchment. Notice what's happening here. Pilate orchestrates the burial. That's what the chapter is called, the burial. Not the murder of Judas of Kiriath, the burial. Pilate secrets the body away, and thus makes Matthew's, Matthew Levi's lie about Jesus still being alive that much more believable. But what's more, notice that Pilate specifically gives Matthew Levi a job in his library. A job where he will maintain the papyri where he will be able to change whatever records he sees fit, where he will be able to compose whatever book he wants to write, where he will be able to immortalize Yeshua's life. Pilate is, in short, orchestrating the creation of Christianity. And notice what Bulgakov is doing here. We've sort of been on the fence about where Bulgakov is about Christianity. Like, is he a Christian? Is he not a Christian? It's real hard to say. He wouldn't be honest about it if he was. But what's more, look at how he's managing to tell this story within the guidelines of the communist byline on, on supernatural events and faith, while also managing to communicate some really profound stuff about Pilate, about Yeshua, and that, for that matter, about Matthew. Notice that he is basically saying the origin of Christianity was the orchestration of Pilate. Pilate enabled Matthew Levi to build a religion out of these documents. He gave him a position that would allow Matthew Levi the ability to disseminate what he had written down and what he had taught. He gave Matthew Levi the ability to make his lie good to make that lie popular, to have everyone in Israel read that lie. In short, Pilate 
funded, patronized Christianity. And take it one step further. Now here I might very well be reaching, and I'm not sure how much of this Bulgakov intended. He certainly would not betray it if he did intend it. Christianity took down Rome. Like, by in 500 years, it's going to be Constantine swearing fealty to the Christians and his sons declaring Christianity the national religion of Rome and give it another 200 years and Rome and the emperors will be gone, but the Catholic Church will endure. For that matter, the Byzantine Empire will flourish under the guidance of the, of the patriarchs. Russian orthodoxy will be created through this process long after Rome has passed away. I suspect what Bulgakov is suggesting here is that Pilate, through his act of defiance, through subtly manipulating the pieces that he does have access to, and notice how he does it all without ever saying anything explicit, all without ever presenting his case, all without ever saying or doing anything that could be used against him how Pilate is sowing the seeds for the destruction of the Roman Empire. Pilate is a rebel, every bit as much as Barabbas was, and way more effectively. Pilate, through his decisions, through raising up Yeshua by way of Matthew's stories about him, destroys the tyrannical, horrific empire that has forced him into this position. Pilate gets his vengeance. And he admits that it's pretty insufficient compared to the awful thing he did by condemning Yeshua in the first place. But he still did it. It's the best he can do, maybe. Maybe not. He admits he could have done better. He could have ruined his career for the sake of this mad preacher for poor Yeshua HaNosri. It is still guilt that torments him. And we'll see the moon, that symbol of him like walking up the staircase, meeting with Yeshua as though the execution never happened, that will continue to, to haunt him, to torment him. The next time we see Pilate, it will be tormented by the moon. Just as the master is bothered by the moon. The moon represents what could have been, what Pilate could have done. But what he has done is insidious and powerful in its own right. And Bulgakov is suggesting, in his own little way here, that when you fight back against this oppressive regime, when you sow the seeds of something more powerful than political power, when you have an idea, when you write that manuscript that will not burn, well, that's the stuff that topples empires. And Bulgakov, as backwards and quiet and underhanded as he may be, seems to be suggesting that he is going to revolt against Stalin in much the same way. Not explicitly, not even implicitly, but read the themes, read the trajectory, and that's where you end up. Stalin falls, the entire Soviet Empire gone, and yet we still read The Master and Margarita today. 
The manuscript didn't burn. Nor will it.